This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Thursday, Joe Biden gets personal with Vladimir Putin, calling him a war criminal. But the US is still resisting calls for a no-fly zone. And sanctions considered for two Kremlin-linked Russian oligarchs with significant interests in Australia's mining industry. These individuals are very close to the regime. By the same logic that we've applied sanctions to Russian oligarchs previously, that logic should apply to these individuals and I can't see any good reason to exempt them. First up today, there's anger in flood-affected communities in New South Wales over delays and discrepancies in emergency assistance. A $1.4 billion package was set to be announced yesterday, but the Prime Minister, who's been in Western Australia since Tuesday, has not yet signed off on it. The frustration could lead to serious political problems for the government as it heads towards an election. There are two key seats in the region, Richmond, held by Labor, and Page, which the Nationals hold but are facing a fight to keep. Our reporter Gavin Coote is in the northern New South Wales town of Ballina and joined me a short time ago. Gavin, good afternoon. You're in the electorate of, of Richmond. What do people there think of these funding arrangements? Well, Sally, Richmond's a pretty diverse electorate. It was originally, I guess, Nationals heartland. We had Larry Anthony here, uh, the Nationals MP, about two decades ago. And before him, Doug Anthony, who many would know as being the longest serving deputy PM. But I guess in more recent decades, it's been held by Labor. And the feeling amongst people in places like Mullumbimby and even Ballina, where I am, they feel that, I guess, that they've been forgotten or they're not receiving the same level of support as those in neighbouring Lismore. Now, areas like Mullumbimby have been quite severely impacted, though they haven't been called catastrophic areas under this arrangement. I just went to uh, a a low-lying area on the Richmond River near Ballina and met up with a couple of farmers there. Now, Val Shackey and her daughter, Susie Melchior, she's a local nurse, and they have a boat tethered to their shed at the moment that was floating away during the floods. It came up into the bottom floor of their house, but almost to the top, and it's been a really traumatic situation for them. And they feel that the only way the government can acknowledge the trauma that the community there has faced is that they provide more funding and for it to be equitable right across the northern rivers. My sister counted what is left of my household possessions and they're in 47 boxes. So I am much more fortunate than many others. Um, I have many friends in Woodburn and Broadwater who have lost everything. And when I say they've lost it, it is worse than a fire because the stench and the filth and the sewerage thick mud um, means that their possessions, they might as well be burnt. And the only way that they can continue to acknowledge the horror and the trauma that this community will now have to work their way through over many years to come is that they need to ensure that that it isn't about which LGA has a Liberal government or which LGA has a, a Labor government, that the funding and that the equal resource is there for all people. So we're talking about demographic of people who are hardy and resilient and we live in, you know, a farming community, as you can hear the tractor starting up there. Um, but, but ultimately, the, the, the ear and the eyes of the government 
need to be shown that they're listening. And, and the only way to do that is to ensure that there's parity between the LGAs, that we're not discerning between that that's, the, that's Page and that's Richmond. I think whoever advised the federal government to split was just stupid. Uh, it's just, it, they're going to be changing it, but it's a really, really bad look and people are going to remember that. That's a retired Ballina farmer there, Val Shackey. And Gavin, in nearby Lismore, which is in the electorate of Page, what's the public reaction been there to this issue of, of flood assistance? Well, Page is held by the Nationals MP, Kevin Hogan. So government held seat. It has changed hands over the years. It was held by Labor at one point by the, now the state MP, Janelle Saffin. She was in the federal um, parliament for a while. But um, there is a feeling here that even in places like Lismore, which is in Page, they need more support. Even though it's been a catastrophic area, there's a feeling that more money needs to be flowing in as soon as possible to get people back on the road to work out whether they can rebuild or not. I met up with one man. His name is Ed. Now, he works in a bakery in Ballina, but his rental accommodation in Lismore, two storeys, the water came into almost attic level on the top floor. He has just found some uh, emergency accommodation, 28 days in a cabin near Ballina. So he feels, you know, like there is a lot of support. It's, it's, it's happening on the ground for him now, but he does have some concern about others in the region. I don't like other people. Maybe they lost their job. I still have my job, so I, I I'm kind of can support myself. But because I'm, I'm here on the visa, so I'm not eligible to apply for those poor. I feel a bit upset because I'm a full-time worker. I'm, I pay the tax just other people, but I don't get the support from Cutterman. That's, that's, that's um, the thing I feel very upset. That's Ballina Bakery worker Ed there, and before him our reporter Gavin Coote. So what are the political implications over the delayed flood relief in some parts of northern New South Wales? Our political reporter Melissa Clark joined me from Canberra a short time ago. Mel, good afternoon. The federal and New South Wales governments have announced a jointly funded package last week that includes some temporary housing and more support is on its way. What's the hold-up politically? What's going on? Well, New South Wales government officials have been working on the details of a, a fairly comprehensive $1.4 billion package, and that would have joint funding from state and federal governments, as happens under disaster recovery funding agreement arrangements. And the New South Wales government was expecting that that would be finalised and announced on Wednesday. But that day came and went and the federal government hadn't signed off on it. And that led to a lot of anger and frustration mounting in the New South Wales government and in the bureaucracy as well. There were concerns from New South Wales that the fact that the Prime Minister has been on a three-day trip in Western Australia was slowing progress. But a spokesman from the Prime Minister says New South Wales' proposal was only received by the National Recovery and Resiliency Agency on Wednesday morning and that it was being urgently worked on. So there's either miscommunication or, or misunderstanding potentially about how quickly this could be finalised. But how that kind of gap in understanding exists is certainly troubling when the two governments should be working in lockstep on this issue. And Mel, in, in the immediate uh, term, people are also just waiting for basic cash support as well. Is that right? 
That's right. We have these Commonwealth disaster relief payments, uh, and this is purely from the federal government. It's the $1,000 that each adult and $400 for each child that's meant to be really immediate temporary support to help buy some extra clothes or uh, get some temporary accommodation if, if you can't live in your home anymore. Now, in recognition of how severe the damage was in, in three local government areas in the New South Wales Northern Rivers region, the Lismore, Richmond Valley and Clarence Valley, two extra rounds of these payments were authorised. But neighbouring local government areas, uh, Tweed, Ballina, Byron, uh, did not get these two additional payments, although the Prime Minister says uh, it's still under consideration. But the division of that Northern Rivers region into the haves and the haves-nots has really caused white-hot anger about this, partly because the haves, those three local government areas that did get the extra funding, are in a nationals-held area and the haves-nots are in labour-held areas. Now, both the state and federal government say that uh, the party affiliation of the local members is not a factor here, but we have uh, the state Upper House MP, Liberal Catherine Cusack, saying she'll resign from Parliament because she sees this divide as being political and as being unethical. Now, New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane says he doesn't think the Prime Minister's trip to Perth has delayed either the additional relief immediately or the broader recovery funding package. And he says he's still pushing the federal government on these issues of getting these disaster relief payments to people in the Tweed, Ballina and Byron regions. What I can say is that I've spoken to the federal treasurer and uh, raised uh, the need for some additional support for some of these areas. He understands that and we're working through that process. Uh, the Premier is obviously engaged with the federal government as well. Uh, we understand the challenge. Some of those LGAs, Tweed, Ballina, for example, Mullumbimby, uh, they've been left out. They need to be supported because some parts of that community have been whacked by these floods and they don't fall within the existing uh, criteria to access Commonwealth Government support. That's the New South Wales Treasurer there, Matt Keane. Before him, our political reporter, Melissa Clark. On ABC Radio, right across the country, you're with us on The World Today. The Australian government is now considering sanctions against two Russian billionaires with significant stakes in Australia's resources industry. The oligarchs are major shareholders in the Russian aluminium company Rusal, which has a joint venture with Rio Tinto on an alumina refinery in Queensland. Both oligarchs are yet to be targeted by the federal government, despite already being sanctioned by the US and the UK, though it seems that may change soon. John Daly reports. Russian oligarchs Oleg Deripaska and Viktor Vexelberg are in Vladimir Putin's inner sanctum and already the target of US and UK sanctions. Both are major shareholders in the Russian aluminium company Rusal, which shares ownership of Queensland Alumina Limited with mining giant Rio Tinto. The billionaires and Rusal are yet to be sanctioned by Australia, but that might be changing. On Sky News, Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews had this to say. Now, uh, QIL, Queensland uh, Alumina, is uh, very important to the Gladstone economy. It's a very large employer in that uh, that town. So uh, we will be mindful of that, but there is the bigger picture that we need to be mindful as well too. And if sanctions are necessary, if we need to continue to put those in place, if more individuals are going to be um, needed to have sanctions against them, then we will take the appropriate action. Rusal may still be exporting alumina from a refinery in Gladstone to Russia that could be used in the Russian war machine. Volodymyr Sholkivsky is the head of the Ukrainian diplomatic mission in Australia. 
And he says these two oligarchs need to be shut down. In Ukraine, it's a matter of death and life force. So we will continue to push for imposing harsh economic uh, sanctions against Russia. Aluminium is used for the aircraft production and military jets production. So it is uh, important for us to have uh, solidarity among our partners. The government is under pressure to explain why it hasn't yet targeted Oleg Deripaska and Viktor Vexelberg, considering the US and the UK already have. Steve Hamilton is the Assistant Professor of Economics at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I mean, they certainly should be sanctioned. <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind about that. The 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 purpose of these sanctions of, of senior Russian individuals is to put pressure on the regime. And we know these individuals are very close to the regime. Uh, and so by the same logic that we've applied sanctions to Russian oligarchs previously, that's that logic should apply to these individuals. And I can't see any good reason to exempt them. I don't think there's any good reason for the government not to be fully transparent in terms of its actions. I don't think there's any good reason to show restraint, frankly, on these on these measures. Uh, but at the at the very least, we should be we should be told. So, uh, I, I would like to see the government be much much clearer about why it has chosen to sanction the individuals it's chosen to, and not to sanction the individuals other countries have sanctions, but it hasn't chosen to. That's what we need, just clarity and transparency. That's Steve Hamilton there from George Washington University, ending that report from John Daly. Well, Ukraine's president has made an impassioned plea to the US for a no-fly zone to protect his people from Russian airstrikes. So far, the US has resisted, but President Joe Biden has stiffened his language towards Moscow, labelling Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Catherine Gregory reports. US troops aren't directly involved in fighting the Russians in Ukraine, but American taxpayers' money is right on the front line. And Joe Biden has now pledged an extra $1.1 billion US dollars in military and humanitarian aid packages to Ukraine. This could be a long and difficult battle. But the American people will be steadfast in our support of the people of Ukraine. We are united in our abhorrence of Putin's depraved onslaught. And we're going to continue to have their backs as they fight for their freedom. The aid is coming in the form of Javelin missiles responsible for destroying scores of Russian tanks, Stinger missiles, which are the scourge of Russian helicopters, as well as more sophisticated surface-to-air systems capable of destroying high-flying jets. But the US remains opposed to one of Ukraine's main pleas for help, and that is establishing a no-fly zone over the war-ravaged country. The White House is worried that could lead to a direct confrontation with Russia, something it doesn't want. A full no-fly zone over the entire country is going to put uh, NATO aircraft in reach of Russian-based ground-to-air systems, and that is a very risky thing to do. Uh, That's why the U.S. and NATO have so far rejected this. Kurt Volker is a former U.S. ambassador to NATO under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He was also President Trump's former U.S. special representative for Ukraine. Also, a lot of the attacks on civilians are coming from multiple rocket launchers and missiles, uh, not only from aircraft. So it wouldn't necessarily stop the bombardment. All that being said, 
Uh, I still believe that we could define limits and purposes for such a no-fly zone, limited geographically, limited to protecting humanitarian uh, movements of civilians and goods, uh, limited in rules of engagement so we make clear to the Russians we are not there to attack them, only firing back if fired upon. Mr Volkers says there are other things the US and NATO can do, such as warn Russia against the use of chemical or nuclear weapons, publicly guarantee their supply of arms to Ukraine and further ramp up economic sanctions against Russia. Then there's the relatively significant move of President Biden labelling Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal, something the Russian Kremlin has deemed unacceptable. War crimes are a personal responsibility. Yes, a state can be guilty of war crimes, but the individuals who are acting on orders and acting within that state to make those crimes happen are also personally liable. And so they will face justice uh, through an international court. It's important that we get that message across because that is significant for the Russian military leadership. But for the people in Ukraine, all of this isn't enough. They want more help from the West. Toma Istomina is the deputy chief editor at the Kiev Independent. I completely support Zelensky's characterization that this is not just a war, it's a genocide because Russians are deliberately targeting civilians. That's Toma Istomina, the deputy chief editor at the Kiev Independent, Catherine Gregory, with that report. Well, the war in Ukraine has generated volatility on the international oil market, sending prices at the Bowser through the roof. But as the global prices come down, when will it reach us, the consumers? Daniel Ziffer is a reporter with the ABC's The Business. Dan, good afternoon. We've heard a lot in the news about um, oil prices. Just with some of the terminology, we hear about uh, uh, Brent uh, crude oil. What is that? Uh, essentially, it's just a kind of broad indicator for the vast majority of oil that's traded around the world, about two-thirds. The other key one that's used for the remaining third is called West Texas. Uh, Brent was originally an oil field, uh, but the term has come to encompass essentially the oil trade of crude, unrefined oil around the world. And that comes from the North Sea, so that's sort of more affected by global conflict and uncertainty, is that right? Well, one of the things we're finding is that, you know, we are heavily addicted to a substance which is produced in some very difficult parts of the world. Uh, part of the reasons why we're seeing fluctuations in prices is that areas like uh, Iran uh, are trying to increase production, the massive sanctions against the uh, Russia who produce, they're the second largest producer in the world, mean that there are real restrictions on the flow of supply around the world. And that's partly what's led to these gyrations in the price in recent months. So, Dan, the global price of oil has fallen below uh, 100 US dollars a barrel for the first time in a fortnight, but prices at the pump are still at a record high. What's happening? Well, they'll probably still go a little bit higher. There's a lag as we get the petrol from around the world that's bought by wholesalers, uh, imported to Australia and then refined and transported and sold at the pump. Now, 90% of the petrol that we use, particularly in our cars, but also for many other things as an input in a lot of things that are made here in Australia, uh, 
comes from overseas. It is imported overseas. We only have two refineries left, and in fact, we're shelling out about $2 billion to keep them open, even though they only refine about 10% of the fuel that we use. So there is a lag between increases in global prices and that flowing to the Bowser. That means that when we've seen recent records for the average price of, say, a litre of unleaded, that's probably going to go higher before it goes anywhere down. Why is the, the global oil price falling? One of the reasons is that there is a belief amongst traders that the tensions in Ukraine and Russia may be resolved, uh, that that would lead to a greater supply, perhaps an end to sanctions for Russia, the world's second largest producer. Separately, China is locking down really large cities with COVID. There's a fear of a greater wave there and very serious restrictions. And when cities are locked down and industries are shut, they use less fuel. So there's more available and thus the price goes down. Um, there are all these factors and it's really difficult because all these things happening far on the other side of the world are affecting you as you put fuel in your car and as you buy items that are either transported using fuel or create with them. Dan, where to from here when it comes to the oil market? Oh gosh, <laughs> if only we knew. I mean, it very much depends on what happens with the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Russia produces a lot of oil and they, Europe in particular, is addicted to the energy provided by Russia. They're finding it very difficult to find alternative sources. They're just not there. So what happens in that conflict is going to have a big role in where prices go. But at the same time, the world is discovering renewable energy as a more standard and major part of its economy and of its, of its energy mix. These price shocks, not just in fuel, have really long-lasting effects. People might forget, but the Arab Spring uprising was largely about massive jack-up in food prices. Here in Australia, where we've seen petrol spikes before, we've seen a massive increase in public transport that in some cases has shown the underdevelopment of that field and prompted more investment in it. So all of these things do have an impact. We sometimes don't feel them immediately at the time, but in years to come, we'll see, oh, maybe this was the time that perhaps kick-started electric vehicles to get from 1% of the Australian fleet to a much larger percentage and perhaps forces Europe to get off its addiction to Russian gas and oil and into more renewable energy. That's business reporter Dan Ziffer. Finally today, just as COVID cases were starting to come down in some parts of the country after the Omicron wave, numbers are soaring once again, driven by a highly contagious subvariant of Omicron that's around 40% more transmissible. Sarah Seji has more. Just when you thought it could be over, the latest sharp rise in COVID cases makes it clear the pandemic is far from done. But how worried should we be about the sub-variant of Omicron known as BA2 that's fueling the rise? Experts say we can look to the experience they've had overseas. Professor Catherine Bennett is the Chair in Epidemiology at Deakin University. With vaccination coverage and immunity as we have it, we don't see that transition to hospital for those um, with a more serious illness in anywhere near the same numbers as we saw with Delta. So that's the good news, is that it's not doesn't cause more serious disease, but we still have this challenge because you can't stop infection risks completely, and it's that bit more infectious. So it means we've got a bit more work to do to keep the virus under control in our communities. There have been over 58,000 cases in Australia in the past day and there are nearly 300,000 active cases right now. 
more than 1,700 people are in hospital, 105 of them in the ICU. In New South Wales, the 10 to 19 years age group has the highest proportion of cases, so it's clear infections are sweeping through schools. And what if you're one of the three and a half million people who've already had COVID? Well, that's where it's been helpful having other countries like Denmark who actually had a lot of the BA1 and BA2 in that first wave. So they've been able to study this variant um, relationship quite closely. And what they found was that they did have a small proportion of people who did have a repeat infection within a 30 to 60 day period. That's what they were monitoring over these last few months. And they did find it was quite rare. Earlier in the pandemic, when borders were closed, there wasn't much flu around because flu flies in. But we're heading into this winter with BA2, as well as the yep. flu risk. What does that sort of dual risk mean for people, particularly those who are more at risk of severe disease like the elderly? We know that winter's a terrible time. You know, that's the worst time for respiratory illness. And that's where we do see a rise in deaths associated with respiratory illness anyway. We don't yet know what will happen with flu. There's still not as much international movement as we've had in the past, but there's probably enough to seed a couple of different variants of flu into the community. And then it, if it takes off locally, we will see flu. And we don't have the, the natural exposure over the last two years that usually affords some protection. So the flu vaccine will be even more important this year. So it might be that, you know, we have an additional burden this year because we've got an additional respiratory illness. It's important to remember that Australia has high vaccination rates, something Professor Bennett thinks will get us through whatever's to come next. That's Sarah Sedgi reporting there. And that's all from the world today for this, uh, this day. We'll see you again tomorrow. I'm Sally Sarah. Take care. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. If you feel like you're paying more for almost everything, it's because you are. Fuel prices, bread, beer, biscuits and even the cost of tin food is on the rise. Today, ABC TV's Insiders host, David Spears, on why we're paying more and how Scott Morrison could be punished for our hip pocket pain at the ballot box. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.